So tonight we are in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be in verses 9 through 11. 1, 9 through 11. Let me start in verse 3. I'll wait for you guys to flip there. You remember how to know, right? How do we know how to find Philippians? Go eat popcorn. All right? That means after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you have Acts and Romans in 1 and 2 Corinthians. You know that. And what happens after that? Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So it's the pop. We're in the pop and you're go eat popcorn. Okay? Small letter. You could easily miss it if you're flipping through, but try to find it. Philippians 1, like I said, will be in verses 9 through 11. Uh, But let me start our reading in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you, all, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me pray for our time in God's word this evening. Lord God, I ask that you would speak to us your truth through your word. Lord, I pray that we would see your great love and that you would move in us a desire to love you more and to love one another more. God, would you clear distractions from our minds? May we worship you in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you guys have been part of TYG for many years. Um, Maybe, well, staff doesn't count. Ethan, you're like forever, right? I guess staff counts too. Ethan, you're going on probably double digits at least. No. Not yet? I, I, well, I didn't start coming until I was 14. So. Oh, okay. So I, I Almost. Some of you, some of you uh, seniors, maybe seven years, you're going on seven years, right? Some of you guys have been here for a while. Some of you just started coming. Robert, your first week, right? Maybe a few of you, just a couple weeks. But whether you've been here for seven years or whether you've been here just for a couple weeks, let me ask this question. It's rhetorical. You don't need to answer it. Please don't answer it out loud. It's be chaos. But let me ask you this question. What is it that you... Let me ask you this way. What is it that you think TYG is known for? What do you think TYG is known for? And I mean like collectively as a group. What are we, as the people in this group, what are we known for? Are we known for being welcoming to others? Are we known for being prideful? Are we known for being evangelistic? For being mature? For being immature? For being self-righteous? For being generous? For being gracious? What is it you think that we're known for? Well, another way I could ask this is, if, if there's one thing you could pray that we would be known for, or even pray that we would grow in, what would it be? And there are many things in which I think would be great for us to pray for, many things in which we could grow in and that we should grow in. One of the greatest, I think, that I would want to pray for our group is that we would be a group that is characterized by our love. And it's not the reputation that I care about, that we're known for that necessarily, but it's more that I pray that we would be a group that loves. That we would be a group that loves, that we are a loving group. And that's exactly what Paul prays for this church. And we see that here in this passage. 
That he prays that they would grow in love. And we had just seen last week that because of their partnership, this church and, and Paul, because of their partnership in the gospel, Paul's thankful for this church. And he expressed his love for this church. And this relationship and this partnership and this love is rooted in Christ Jesus and his gospel. And we even saw last week that Paul mentions that he prays for this church. Remember, he says, I pray for you guys. And here in verse 9 through 11, we see that he doesn't just say that he prays for them, but he actually offers up a prayer for them. These verses, they're, they're not simply just kind pleasantries that, that he wants to put into the intro of his letter. But he actually prays a prayer of intercession for this church. And the subject of his prayer is love. He prays that they would love. He prays that they would be people who love. And this evening we're going to see Paul's prayer of love for this church. And first we're going to look at the what in Paul's prayer of love. What is it that Paul prays for? What is, what's the content of his prayer? And then we'll look at the why in Paul's prayer. Why does Paul pray these things? What is he hoping will come from this? Come from praying for love and their growth in love. So that's what we're looking at tonight. Paul's prayer of love for this church. So first, the what in Paul's prayer of love. And this is going to be in verse 9. We're going to see the what, the content of Paul's prayer of love. The first thing we see is for love to abound more and more. We see that in the first part of verse 9. I didn't go over. Let's try that again. There we go. For love to abound more and more. The beginning of verse 9. The first thing we see is that Paul's an example of this love. Remember, we have to see this prayer in its context, in which we looked at last week. Because they have a shared love in Christ, and because of Paul's deep affection for them... He prays for them. Let me read in verse, starting in verse 7. Remember from last week. It is right for me to feel this weight about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. You see that in verse 9, where we're starting our study tonight? It starts with and. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. That and connects us with those previous verses. Paul's love for this church, which he talked about in 7 and 8, it leads him into a prayer for this church. And do you not do the same? You ought to. You ought to pray for those you love. Last week we talked about Loving the body of Christ. And you ought to pray for the body of Christ. We looked at that last week. And that's what Paul does here in these verses 9 through 11. And the first thing he prays for is that their love would abound more and more. And at first it might seem a little weird for him to pray for that. Because Paul just talked about how great their mutual love is for one another. Do you remember? He talked about, yeah, like, you love me and I love you. Like, we have a good mutual love for one another. So why would he then pray that their love would abound more and more? See, Paul's not praying that they would start having love for the body, that they would start having love for each other and for him. They already have love. In fact, they even excel in love. But Paul prays that they would grow in it and that they would abound in it. In fact, it's similar to what he says to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 10. Listen to what he says to this church. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He says, you're loving people great. You don't need anyone to write to you about this. And then he says, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more. 
Right? He's saying to the church in Thessalonica, he's saying, hey, like you're doing great. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write. Like you, You've been taught and you are loving well, but I urge you, do this more and more. May we never become static in our love. May we never become idle in our love. But may we abound in our love for one another more and more. Paul's desire is that that there would be no limit to the increase and the growth of the love that the Philippians have for one another. It doesn't stop, but it just abounds more and more. And may that be our prayer as well. And maybe you feel like you love people pretty well. Maybe you feel like that you love the body of Christ. Pray that your love would abound more and more. Do you think that you have reached the capacity of being able to love more? You've reached the limit? I can tell you, you haven't. Do you think it would be profitable for you to love more and more? Do you think it would be a good thing? I can tell you it would be. So like Paul, let us pray that our love would abound more and more. Next we see in his prayer that he prays for love to be grounded in knowledge. For love to be grounded in knowledge. Verse 9 says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. Paul's prayer is that their love would be with knowledge. And indeed, love ought to be the outpouring of knowledge. These two things, love and knowledge, need to work together. In fact, there is danger in having one without the other. On one end of the spectrum is love without knowledge. And these people pursue no doctrine. These people hold to no biblical truth. And all they care about are their feelings. And they don't know why they love God. They don't know anything about him. And they don't know why they should love others. And so they love when it's convenient to love. They love when they feel like loving. But it's not rooted in truth. And then on the other end of the spectrum are those who have an immense amount of knowledge, but no love. And they know so much about God and his word, and they study scripture, and they know the truth. They have big heads, but they have little hearts. And they may have a lot of knowledge, but they have no love. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says that's worthless. Instead, Paul prays that their love would be with knowledge. And so first, I challenge you to be rooted in knowledge. And the word here for knowledge that he uses, it's a specific word that speaks of spiritual knowledge. Paul's not praying that they would just get smarter and be more intellectual. He's not praying that they would learn mathematics. But he's praying that they would grow in their knowledge of the Lord. That they would grow in spiritual knowledge. And he connects this with love. That their love would abound more and more with spiritual knowledge. As one author put it, he said, quote, Love is not blind. Love is biblically informed. End quote. It's not blind. It's biblically informed. As we learn of the things of God, of who he is and what he has done, as we learn of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we are then transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be loving, compassionate people. As you learn about God and you behold this God, like we talked about at winter camp, right? That you see him high and lifted up. That you see him that he is holy, holy, holy. As you learn of his perfection and his sovereignty, as you study his attributes, as you see his amazing grace and all so forth, your love for God grows. As you learn that God added humanity to himself, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, that he came to earth and he died a sinner's death so that you may live. Your love for God grows. As you see the Holy Spirit, that he dwells inside you and that he sustains you and he transforms you and he keeps you. Your love for God grows. 
And as your love for God grows, it leads to worship of him. And out of worship to him and out of love for him, your love for God's people grows. How can it not? How can your love for God grow, but your love for his people does not grow? How can you say to someone, God loved you so much that he gave his son for you, but I don't give a rip about you. That's great that God loves you, but not me. I can't. Do you love others? It ought to be rooted in your knowledge of God. As you grow in your knowledge of Him, you ought to grow in your love for Him, and as a result, a love for His people. Are you growing in the knowledge of God? Or does that have no priority in your life? Are you active in pursuing knowledge of God? Or are you passive in your growth of your understanding of God? Grow in your knowledge of God. And let your knowledge of God create in you a love for God and therefore a love for others. Do you see that connection? See, true knowledge of God, truly beholding Him, knowing who He is, Knowing what he's done, knowing God, knowledge of God, it ought to create worship of God. I think Nehemiah 8.6 is a great example of this. In Nehemiah 8.6, let me turn there. Ezra is reading the law to God's people. He, after he reads the law to God's people, how do they respond? Nehemiah 8.6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. See, after hearing of God, how do they respond? They respond in worship. After hearing the law of God read, they said, Amen, Amen, their faces are on the ground. They are worshipping God. It's not just this emotional-based worship. It's not that, that Ezra like made the lighting all cool and, and got like the music going and made it all emotional. And they're, oh, and then, okay, amen, amen. They're worshiping God because it was this emotional moment. No. What happened? They heard the truths of God. That's why they worshiped. They heard the truth of God, and it is the truth and the knowledge of God that led to their genuine praise and worship of God. Grow in both your knowledge of God and your affection of God. And may that lead you then to love others as well. Paul prays that we'd be grounded, our love would be grounded in knowledge. And then he prays for love to be grounded in discernment. For love to be grounded in discernment. Still in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. See, not only does Paul pray that their love would be with knowledge, that it would be with spiritual knowledge, but also that their love would be with all discernment. That they would have understanding and wisdom on how it is they are to love. It is necessary for us to know how the word of God says we ought to love others. What does God's word say? How does God's word say we need to love others in this way? What does God's word say about this friendship and how I should love this person, this friendship? What does God's word say about loving our enemies? What does God's word say about loving my boss and my co-workers? What does God's word say about loving the nations and people across the world? What does God's word say about loving the unlovable? What does God's word say about loving the least of these? What does God's word say about loving my parents when I don't get along with them and I disagree with them? What does God's word say about dating relationships and if I should love them and how I should and what does that look like? What does God's word say about these things? Do you know that the Bible speaks to all of this? 
You know who else speaks to all of this? The world. Many times what God's word says and what the world says, they are in contradiction to each other. They are at odds. And Paul prays that their love would be with all discernment. That they would be able to discern how it is they are to love others in the various spheres of life. And many people today will say, well, if it feels good, that's probably right. Follow your heart. Listen to your heart. What is, what is your heart telling you? Is that biblical wisdom? Our love must be tied to truth. Let the truth of God's word be the driving force and the authority on how we ought to love others. What about standing up for God's truth? Is that loving or is that unloving? Such as even now, the the gender confusion movement, the LGBTQ. You'll be labeled as unloving and intolerant if you don't agree with them. Is that true? Are you unloving if you don't support LGBTQ? Have discernment. Have knowledge of God's word. And let his word be the foundation and the authority of your love. Is your love grounded in the word of God? Is your love with all knowledge and discernment? Where might there be areas in your heart Maybe where the lines are starting to blur. Where are you unsure if your love is driven by the world's definition and standard of love? Or if it's driven by God's word and his truth? May your love be grounded in discernment. So that's the what. That's what Paul prays for. We see it in verse 9. In verses 10 and 11 we see the why. The why in Paul's prayer of love. This is indicated in verse 10. He says, so that. Like why? Well, so that. And then we're going to look at five. Why does Paul pray these things? What is he hoping will come from this? We're going to see five things. The why in Paul's prayer. The first is so that you may test love. So that you may test love. Verse 10a. That you may test it. He says in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. And it's very similar to the love being grounded in discernment, which we just looked at. But here this is action, so that you may approve what is excellent. And the word for approve, it means to test. It means to examine. That's why I say so that you may test love. That's what the word means, to test, to examine. Paul says, test what is excellent in the context of love. I think the point is to be able to approve, to test what is of most importance. What is excellent, as he says here? What is best? What is superior? As our love is grounded in knowledge and discernment, Paul's prayer is that it would result in a love that approves and tests what is best. This is the challenge, is it not? To know what is best. I think it's appropriate for this to challenge us in our own affections in life. And I know that might not be the immediate context, and I'll get to that in a second. But I do want to challenge us in that. Our own affections in life and knowing what is best. What is it that you love? What is it that you're most concerned about? What is it that you prioritize in your life? See, the challenge in life is that there are a lot of good things in life. And we can say yes to many things that are good, right? We say yes to this, and y'all do that, and I'll have this, and there are a lot of good things. But what is best? You see, we need to say no to some things. We need to say no to some good things. In regard to our love, we need to approve what is excellent, what is superior, what is best. How you fill your time, what you prioritize, what what you say yes to that causes you to say no to something else reveals what is most important in your heart. What is it that you love? Is your love approving what is excellent? 
Is your love approving what is best? Or are the things that are best being neglected? Are there things that, that they're, are they're good, but they're taking a priority when it shouldn't? See, that's the hard thing. We often fill our lives with what we deem as good things. But are they the best things? Well, how do we know? Well, he prays that their love would be filled with knowledge and discernment. And so may the word of God drive your love for what is best. In this context, however, I think Paul's referring more to our love for others in this approving what is best, rather than our affections in life. That he's saying to prove and test what is the most superior love for one another. That's in its most immediate context. That as we grow in the knowledge of God, as we treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ, may we be able to test and to know the most excellent and superior ways in which we can love one another. Christian, we are the body of Christ. How are we to interact with one another? How are we to love one another? What, what, what is the best way to do this? How can we know? How can we know what is the best way to love one another? Be filled with the knowledge of God. Let his word inform you and therefore approve what is excellent, as he says. Look at God's love for you. Look at Christ's love for his people and let that, his love, Inform you on how you ought to love one another. What does it look like? It's forgiveness. It's gracious. This love is sacrificial. It's humble. It's merciful. It's unchanging. These are the ways in which God loves you, Christian. And he's saying, let this inform you then how you are to love others. How are we to know how to love each other in the best way possible? How are we to know what is the most superior way to love one another? Look at Christ. Meditate on the ways in which he loves you. And may that love fuel you to love others in the same way. I think that's what he's getting at. In this context of having a superior love for one another. And Paul prays, in addition to that, that this love then would be genuine, which is our next point. Why? Under why? So that you may be genuine in love. So that you may be genuine in love. Moving on, verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, he says. Paul prays for two ways in which their love may be genuine towards one another. Pure and blameless. says one in a positive sense and one in the negative sense. And first he says to be pure. That your love may be pure. That's the positive way. His prayer is that their love would be pure. That it would be sincere. And the word he uses for pure is actually a very specific word. It means sun-tested. He's saying that your love may be sun-tested. You're like, what on earth? Why would your love be sun-tested? I'm going to help you. I'm going to explain it. Stay tuned. In ancient times, many people would sell pottery. And you can imagine all these stands, these pottery stands. And the most expensive pottery, well, it was actually thin pottery. It wasn't thick pottery. You can find a lot of those thick, thick pottery, still the artifacts, whatever. But it's the thin ones that were rare, or I would say that were more expensive. The thin pottery. But the problem with the thin pottery is that it would crack easily. Why? Because it's thin, right? But it's more expensive. And so what scammers would do, they would get these the thin potteries that were already cracked, and they would fill the cracks with wax. And they'd cover it up with paint, and they'd cover it up with, with glaze, and they'd sell it for a high price because it's, it's a thin pottery. However, the integrity was compromised, right? Because it was cracked. It was secretly covered with wax. And so some pottery sellers, they would label their pottery, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but they label their pottery sincera. Sincera, where we get the word sincere. Sincera literally means without wax. And so they would sell these thin potteries and they would have a sign that say sincera. They say without wax. These potteries are without wax. 
And the way in which people would test it, okay, yeah, is it really without wax? How would they test it? They would hold up the pot. You see, is this truly sincere? Is this sincere? Is this really without wax? They'd hold it up to the sunlight to see if there's any hidden cracks. If you hold it up to the sunlight, then you can see through it, see through the paint and the glaze, and see if there were cracks that were covered up with wax. And Paul was praying that their love would be sun-tested. That's what he's saying by pure. That word pure literally means sun-tested. He's saying that your love would be sun-tested, it would be pure, that it would be sincere, it'd be sincere, your love would be sincere, it'd be without wax. May that be our prayer as well. That if you are in Christ, your love would be sincere. It'd be without wax. That it would be pure, it'd be sun-tested. Do you have genuine, pure love for one another, for the body of Christ? That when held up to the sun, it proves to be real. Real love. It proves to be pure. Or is your love filled with wax and just covered up with paint? That it looks good on the outside. It looks like love for one another, but in reality, in your heart, you don't really love them. You don't really love the body of Christ. You put on this mask. You say, oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, I love you so much. But deep down, you know you don't. It's not sincere. It's not pure. It's fake. He says, let your love be pure. Let it be sun-tested. And the second thing he prays for is the love to be blameless. And this is in the negative form. To be blameless. The reason why I say it's in the negative form is because what he's praying for them is to not cause others to stumble. That's what it means by blameless. That they would not, their love would not cause others to stumble. That in our love for one another, we ought to avoid causing others to stumble. If we have a genuine, sincere, pure love for one another, we ought to put their needs ahead of our own. And we ought to look for their interest, their best interest. If that means setting things aside because that would cause them to stumble, then we do so out of love and say, okay, no problem. Is your love for one another pure? That when held up to the light, it's proven to be sincere, it's proven to be without wax? Is your love for one another blameless? Do you put others ahead of yourself as to seek their best interest so as to not cause them to stumble? May our love abound more and more in the knowledge of Christ so that our love may be pure and blameless, that it would be genuine. Next we see, so that you may anticipate Christ. Why? So that you may anticipate Christ. Continue in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. For the day of Christ. Paul is praying that we may love others in preparation and anticipation of the day of Christ, of his return. Now what does the day of Christ have anything to do with how we love others and how we live our lives today? Everything. And actually it has everything to do with it. Let me read to you 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What does he say? How, how ought we live in light of the day of Christ and his return? He says live in lives of holiness and godliness. Christian, we ought to be living our lives in light of that day of Christ. You see, the reality of the coming of Christ, it ought to do one of two things. It ought to terrify you and lead you to repentance. Or ought to create in you great hope that leads to worshipful living. If you are not a Christian, my prayer is that the reality of the coming of Christ would bring you to repentance. Similar to what MJ shared, right, in her snippet. Listen, if you are not in Christ, the reality is that you will face God one day. And on that day, you will be judged rightly. And the reality is that you have sinned against the holy God 
and you will stand guilty before him. And the just penalty is the eternal separation from God, receiving his wrath forever in the lake of fire. And there's nothing more terrifying than standing guilty before this holy God. And apart from Christ, you will stand guilty. And there's nothing that you can do to remove that guilt from yourself. There's not an amount of good works that you can do to remove that guilt. There's not an amount of cover-up that you can do. It's not sincera. It's not without wax. You can put all the wax that you want of church attendance, of good works, of reading your Bible, of prayers, of giving to the poor, of all these other things that look great, and you're just covering it up with glaze and paint. But you know it's not sincere. You know you're covering up with wax. And that accomplishes you nothing in the courtroom of God. But there is hope in Christ. Because in Christ we have forgiveness. And in Christ we have redemption. And in Christ we have His righteousness. And in Christ we have salvation. It is because of Jesus Christ and it is only in Jesus Christ that we can stand forgiven and declared innocent before God. That's it. There is hope in that. And there's a hope in Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, and you do not know what all this means, if you you want to talk further about this, please, open invitation for me, any of the staffers, please talk to us about that. Now, if you are a Christian, my prayer for you is that the coming of Christ would give you great hope. And it would create in you then worshipful living. And in this case, a life that is filled with pure and blameless love for one another. If you are already saved, you know you will be with Christ one day. That is promised. That is a sure thing. So how will you live your life today in light of that promise? Knowing the end is secure. That ought to create in you a boldness then to live for Christ now. Even how you love one another. The anticipation of the coming of Christ, it changes everything. It changes how you live your life today. Right? Anticipating that day affects your decisions today. Does that make sense? It's like this. When my wife and I were engaged to be wed. We were anticipating that day of our wedding. Ethan, are you anticipating your day? Yes. yes. What, what day are you getting married? April 26th. Look, he knows it. Right? That's wonderful. You're anticipating it. Yes. I was anticipating my wedding day, September 29th, I think. <laughs> it is, it is. It's been a long time. No, it is. And we were engaged for three months. And that anticipation... It affected how we we lived our days leading up to that day of September 29th. It affected our priorities. It affected our decisions. It affected what I was doing the morning of the wedding. It affected our whole lives. Every day for those three months up until September 29th, we were anticipating that day in which that we would be married, we'd be wed. And every day our, our, our lives were in anticipation of that. We're now meeting with caterers and cake people and photographers and, and picking out plasticware and all this stuff. We are living in anticipation for the day of our wedding that we knew was coming. In the same way, Christian, we have a wedding day. We will be with Christ, our bridegroom. The anticipation of that day ought to affect how we live our lives today. Christian, do you live in anticipation of Christ? Do you live in light of his coming? There is great hope in the day of Christ, and it's a sure thing. And it ought to create in you worshipful living. Next, we see, so that you may produce fruit. Verse 11. So that you may produce fruit. says in verse 11, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul prays that they be filled with the fruit of righteousness, that they would abound in love, grounded in knowledge of God, and therefore bear fruit, fruit of righteousness. We cannot neglect this part of God's work in the believer's life. Now, with good intention, I think we want to avoid Phariseeism. I get that. But we must remember that the Christian is to walk in good works and to bear fruit. Last week, we read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, as we often do. It's a wonderful verse. I'll read it again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Beautiful, right? Like, it is by grace, through faith. It's a gift from God. It's not your works. You cannot boast, right? Like, this is your salvation. But he goes on, verse 10, right after that. He follows it up with this. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, and even here, Paul prays in line with this, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And in its context, I think the fruit of righteousness he has in mind is how they interact and love one another in the body of Christ. That's this fruit of righteousness. If you are in Christ today, is there fruit of righteousness and how you love one another? In the ways in which you speak. In the ways in which you act. In the ways in which you think about others in the body of Christ. Is there fruits of righteousness? Now does this fruit of righteousness originate from yourself? Because you're, you're so good you mustered up the strength to produce this fruit of righteousness? No, it comes through Jesus Christ. Well where do you get that Luke? From Paul, right here in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't get much more clear than that. What an incredible and comforting truth to know it's not in our power to produce this fruit of righteousness. But it comes through Jesus Christ. It is by his grace and by his power that we can produce fruits. In fact, John writes about this in his gospel. As Jesus says, he is the true vine. John 15, 4 through 5. Jesus, after saying he's the true vine, says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, which is Jesus. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And you see how clear that is? Those that are in Christ will bear fruit. You cannot do so on your own. But in Christ, we bear fruit. And apart from Christ, you cannot bear fruit. And for some in here, maybe you've grown up thinking you've always been a Christian. Yeah, I've been a Christian since I was born. I've grown up in a Christian family. And yet, you see, there is no fruit in your life. And if this is you, I would challenge you not to just try harder and say, well, I just need to do more things and I just need to be more disciplined and I just need to, I just need to do this and do this so that I can bear fruit. No. I would first challenge you to evaluate, are you truly in Christ? Do you abide in him? Are you in Christ? Are you genuinely in him? Are you truly saved? And if so, then rely on his power and his grace. See, for those in Christ, you will bear fruit. It's promised. Now, sometimes that requires pruning. In fact, Jesus says, just a couple verses before that, in verse 2, he says, Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, as in God, that it may bear more fruit. He prunes. And sometimes the pruning hurts. Sometimes the pruning means giving up things that you love. Sometimes the pruning means 
seeing sin in your life that you didn't realize was there and mortifying it. And the pruning will result in fruit. Not because you're so great and you're so amazing and you're so better than everyone else. Look at me, I read my Bible every day. All right. No, but because you are abiding in Christ and this fruit of righteousness comes from him. Christian, in regards to loving others in the body of Christ, remember in its context, are there areas in your life that you know need to be pruned? In regards to your love towards others, are there areas in your life that you know need to be pruned? Your thoughts towards others? Your attitudes? Your actions towards others that are not fruitful but are sinful? Confess those to the Lord and ask that he would produce in you fruits of righteousness. Now lastly, as the saying goes, last but not least, and certainly not least, I would say save the best for last, so that you may glorify God. So that you may glorify God. Verse 11. Filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays for all of this, but ultimately it's for one reason, to the glory and praise of God. That is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate reason. Why abound in love more and more? Why grow in the knowledge of God? Why be pure and blameless? And it's an immediate context. Why be filled with the fruits of righteousness? For the glory and praise of God. There is no greater purpose. There is no greater reason than for his glory. And my prayer for all of you, that would be the same. That all you do, you do for the glory of God. Let me ask you, why do you read your Bible? Why do you give to the offering? Why do you sacrifice your time and your energy for the sake of others? Why do you prioritize coming to church? Why do you come to TYG? Why do you choose not to sin? Why do you choose to love the unlovable? Why do you love others? Why do you do any of these things? My prayer is that you would do all of this for the glory and the praise of God. In fact, even as we look back at John 15, with Jesus being the true vine and his people abiding in him, look at what Jesus says is the goal. In 15 verse 8, he says, by this my Father is glorified. That's why, because it glorifies the Father. That fruit, it glorifies him. Christian, are you striving to bear fruit? Do you strive for that? Do you strive to bear fruit, to be pruned and to bear fruit? Why? Why bear fruit? Why grow and live in obedience to God? Why? May it not be so that other things higher of you, so other think, oh man, look at them, they're really growing, man, they're, they're, they're really good. May it not be so you feel better about yourself, like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm feeling good, like I'm living a pretty good life. May it not be so you feel like you have a better standing with God. Okay, if, if, I, if I stop this sin and I start doing Christian things, then I'll be in, you know, just... And better standing with God. No, may it not be any of that. None of that is true. May it be for this, for the glory and praise of God. May it be because you want nothing else in your life than to live for his glory. So will you bear fruit? And will you love others? My prayer is that you would. And my prayer is that you would do so for the glory of God. Well, in this prayer of Paul for this church, we see the central theme of love. In fact, he prays that their love would abound more and more. May that be our prayer as well. That we would abound in love. Do you think we as a group love too much? Do you think you as an individual Love too much? Or are you like me? And can you abound in love more and more? I challenge everyone in this room to first look at Christ.
Look at Christ. To be filled with the knowledge of his gospel. To be overwhelmed by the truth of his gospel. To replicate the example of his gospel. And to live out the love of his gospel to one another. May the gospel of Jesus Christ be the center and the driving force of your love for one another. So fixate your eyes on the love of Christ and soak in the depths and the wonders and the love of Christ. And in turn, love others the same. As you do so, rely on his strength as he empowers you to do so. And do so all for the glory and the praise of God. Let that be our ultimate goal. Let us say to one another, I will love you because I have been shown the greatest love of all. And I will love you because I have no greater desire than to live for the glory of God. Let that be our prayer. Let me pray. Lord God, I pray that our love would abound more and more. God, I pray that we would first look to Christ and see your great love towards us. That we would fixate our eyes on the gospel and that we would then love others in Christ, in the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we would grow in all discernment of this love, that we would approve what is excellent. Our love would be pure and it would be blameless. We would anticipate Christ, God, that we would bear fruit of righteousness all for your glory. God, may we be a people, a group who love, who serve you, and who desire to glorify you in all things. Spirit, would you work in our hearts, convict us and change us tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.